education system such as it is in most places these days, not just in, in the United States, but in most places these days, is woefully lacking in basic analytical training. I mean, it's, it's actually pretty terrible. Uh, the conclusions people come to based on the, 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 the terrible information that they have, information that they can see, they should be able to tell immediately through 10 different telltale signs. This is, this is questionable. It constantly astounds me. So again, that's one of the things I've tried to build into the course that I just created is, is historical literacy training. And not just historical, just literacy training. People have lost the ability, students have lost the ability to read, not just to read and understand those specific words, but to read between the lines and to make connections. And uh, whether you've traveled or not, that skill can, can protect you from being duped to a large degree, I think. That's Dr. William Jackson. He has a PhD in history from Syracuse University, and he has been teaching as a university professor for almost a decade. He has chosen to forgo the traditional labor for tenure career track. He believes the internet holds the key to new forms of education that will, over time, erode and ultimately destroy traditional students in a brick and mortar box education. He grew up overseas and loves history, so he became a world nomad with his family in order to record history mini lectures on location that are available to students around the world. So take a seat by the fire as we travel to Idaho to discuss his story of reimagining education. So we'd like to welcome Dr. William Jackson, AKA the nomadic professor to our show. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks for having me, appreciate it. Great, and you are currently in Idaho. Right, an undisclosed location in Western Idaho. <laughs> that's, that's what we do as well, so we understand, <laughs> undisclosed. So right. how we usually start this is we like to have you introduce yourself and so kind of tell us uh, where you're from, number of kids, a little bit about how you grew up and what you're doing now. It's a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, so I am married and we have four kids, uh, ages 6, 12, 14, and 16, almost 17. So a, a wide range there. Uh, been homeschooling for eight years. Uh, I grew up overseas. Um, left the country, left the States when I was six and didn't come back to live here till college. Um, my dad is a, a doctor for the embassies and consulates. And so we would, we'd be in one country for two to four years and then another country, usually on a different continent for two to four years. And it was just, you know, mostly pre-internet or early internet. So when you said bye to people in South Africa, you were saying bye for real. There wasn't, hey, we'll, we'll catch you on Zoom tomorrow. <laughs> um, so I sort of, I don't know, I blame that for instilling a bit of a wanderlust or cabin fever, maybe. In some ways, it's a curse because um, <laughs> you get tired of a place very quickly. I don't mean tired of it, but you're ready to move on to the next place. Um, and that was, that was the normal thing for me. And, and my wife knew it when we were dating. And I told her, hey, you say yes to this engagement question you know you're going to be we're going to go all over the place you have to be okay with that and she's totally embraced it and yeah the, the last 17 years we've we've lived in i think 15 different sort of homes but then we've also been nomadic for years uh and when i say nomadic i mean 
moving to a different place every few days to few weeks. Um, and yeah, and I, I, I got my PhD in 2013, finished that, and I've been adjuncting or teaching as full faculty, but nomadically since then. And your educational background is in what? So uh, my, my PhD is in history. My specialty is supposed to be, uh, originally it was uh, South Asian revivalist Islam. So I studied two major Sunni groups with hundreds of millions of members. In the West, we haven't heard of them usually, the Diobundis and the Borelvis, but they're a big deal in the Muslim world and in, in India and Pakistan. And I studied their, I still study their rivalry and how it helped create modern Pakistan and India to a lesser degree. Um, but the truth is, since I got my PhD, since I'm teaching at multiple institutions and I'm nomadic, uh, I, I teach, I'm a generalist now. I've been teaching big survey courses to hundreds of students a semester. That's, that's what they want me to do. So I haven't had a chance to be a specialist. I'm really more of a generalist, uh, which since I'm creating homeschool courses and whatnot, it has turned out to be a great blessing. Most homeschoolers aren't interested in the rivalry between the Diobundis and the Borelvis in <laughs> British Imperial India. You know, so anyway. <laughs> it sounds interesting to me. <laughs> hey, we can talk about it anytime. It is interesting and important. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so you you come back to the States, you graduate from university. Was it BYU? Is that I got my bachelor's at BYU in Asian studies. I got a master's in humanities at Penn State, and then I got my PhD in history at Syracuse. In Syracuse. Okay. So you, you get out of school, you have your doctorate, and the typical career path would be to um, work at a university and try to attain tenure, right? Right. And that was the plan um, for a year or two. I don't know why I thought I could do that. Um, <laughs> Because tenure, you get tenure somewhere, you are stuck there. I mean, that is your home. Uh, and the, the hope for any tenure track faculty is decades. I mean, for life, because it's so hard to get tenure. Um, I worked as an adjunct for, for, you know, three or four or five years, uh, just at multiple institutions. And just being stuck in the one spot and teaching surveys, I don't know, it, it was too much. And I came home one day with an idea, I sat my wife down in the living room and I said, I know what we're gonna do. You tell me what you think. And I told her about the nomadic idea. And um, th that idea is only possible if multiple educational institutions will think it's intriguing enough to give me a shot with them. Like being an adjunct at one school is not enough to pay for my family to live nomadically. Mm -hmm. uh, adjuncts make terrible wages. Um, so I spent nine months, every weekend for nine months, I would take a kid and go to a different part of the country, pitching the idea to schools. I ended up meeting with 50 schools, exactly 50 schools all over the country. And after nine months, I had a handful of them who were willing to take a chance with me. And uh, it was enough on a shoestring budget to fund our nomadic lifestyle. And it's grown since then. So. Wow. <laughs> And when you say you took a kid with you, you took like one of your own kids to go. Yeah. Yeah. So anytime, anytime we travel, 
you know, since they're homeschooled, you may as well take advantage of the mobility. And so, yeah, we would incorporate that into the, the curriculum. They'd have to write an essay or something, uh, take advantage of going to this place. And yeah, we always travel together. Very, very rarely do I travel by myself. Yeah. Okay, so you, so you made the pitch. And is that one in 2012? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, no 16 right i'm sorry 16 that's right that was 16 so that was after a few years of laboring as an adjunct at all these different schools um i made the pitch from january to about september of 2016 slowly gathering institutions that would trust me uh, that thought it was an intriguing idea so the idea was what i was pitching to them was look more and more things are going online online history courses are terrible generally um (laughs) I will film material, what I call the mini lectures, I'll film them, film them on location. So when you're taking a class from me, it'll feel like your professor is traveling all over the place to pertinent sites throughout the course, like your professor is nomadic during the course. So you're taking a world history course, your professor seems to be all over the world as you progress through the course, um, a little more engaging. And so that was the point. And uh, that was the pitch. And we, we got enough institutions to sign on that we were able to, to go do the filming. And like I said, it's grown ever since, thank goodness. Wow. And so when you were nomadic, were you teaching um, online through oh. these universities at the same time? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah it was, so that was the, the big requirement uh, when we were, Anywhere we, we were situated, we had to have Wi-Fi connection. And, and the crazy thing is that is so widespread now. I mean, I can't believe how much it's changed just in a few years to where it's a real challenge to have connectivity to where you could be at a tea house high in the, in the Himalayas of Nepal, you know, a half day's trek away from the highest lake in the world, Tilicho, and they've got fast Wi-Fi for you. It's just crazy. <laughs> So, I mean, as long as we had Wi-Fi, I could connect with my students. I, 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 I could teach all my classes and it was fun for the students. You know, I have students at Utah State University. They let me teach more specialized courses and uh, they're, they're, they're taking courses in, you know, South Asian religion and politics for me. And I'm in South Asia. Like I'm not just, it's not just they're, they're watching my videos in South Asia, but I am literally in South Asia at the time. Uh, so it's kind of, it's, it was a lot more engaging for them. It was a great experience. Well, the reason we found you is we found your YouTube videos and, well, I'm sorry. She found your YouTube videos. <laughs> she does a lot of the Thank digging. You. And she's like, hey, check Those this. Those are a lot of work. I, I'm sure they are. Yeah. And she said, hey, check this, check this guy out. It's, this is really cool. And I kept going through your videos and um, I found the ones, I love the ones in New Mexico because we used to live in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. But right. I've got a few more coming. Do you? Awesome. And <laughs> yeah. then we found out that we saw that you uh, you traveled the world doing these videos and that you obviously homeschooled your kids or road schooled your kids, whatever you want to call it. And we were just, <laughs> we like were that. like road school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, a, that's good. Yeah. And we were, we were just, we were drawn in and that's why we wrote you, but uh, it's just fascinating that you were able to pull that off with these, with these colleges and universities to, to fund basically your habit. <laughs> right. And, and when I say fund, I just mean they paid me as an adjunct. I didn't get anything extra. Mm-hmm. I paid for the whole trip with adjunct wages. It's just the difference was instead of teaching at one or two institutions, I was teaching at 
five or six. Right. And I was taking the extra, what I made from the third, fourth and fifth institution. And that was paying for tickets and accommodations and things. But it was a great experience for the kids and for the family. And I don't think we'll ever be entirely settled, and particularly during the homeschool years. It's too great of an education. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I love that you brought that up, how you funded this, because we have asked people that we have interviewed in the past, you know, someone who doesn't do that. You're always like, what do these people do to be able to travel around exactly. all over the world <laughs> and afford this? Because especially with as many kids as you have, we have three kids. It's expensive. So you're either independently wealthy or you're an IT. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's what right. I figured. That's what I figured. And That's right. Yes. And to hear, and to hear somebody who went out and, and basically became, you became like an entrepreneur and sold yourself. That's really cool. I mean, that's that's a great story. It it was really weird for the academics I talked to. I just constantly got, I either got, you know, this is not a a wise choice for you. Um, (laughs) You should be going for tenure track. Don't you realize all you've invested into yourself and blah, blah, blah. And then, or, or I'd get, like confusion like this isn't what people do we don't do this uh, i found mo- many academics and there's so many great academics uh but they're, they're very unpopular these days but uh there are so many great people in academia um there's all types but um there was often confusion because a lot of them i think are academia the, the tenure track system is a system of security people get into it because it's it's predictable uh, at the end of the line, there's a there's a, a safety net for you. And um, so I think a lot of people who are drawn to that sort of uh, security, that sort of predictability uh, are drawn to academia. And so they were confused by me because I was, I mean, I was sort of blazing my own way in this world of predictability. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sort of had to ignore all the people, all the department heads at these famous colleges and universities saying, you should really be working on your, on, on tenure, (laughs) whatever it's working out so far. Yes. What did your uh, family think when you came up with this idea? Cause you also, your kids were a little older too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, we, we've been homeschooling them since uh, 2011. I guess it's been, it's been nine years. Um, when I was doing dissertation research in India and Pakistan, I mean, the whole family was there for two years. So we just, that's when we started homeschooling. Mm. And then when we came back to the States, the, that first time we, we just kept going. Um, so they were used to being dragged around, but this is, I mean, going fully nomadic. Uh, they were just young enough. I think they saw it as a big adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I, it's more challenging now. This is one of the reasons we've got a base. Now that I have older teenagers, uh, they want they want more consistent friendship. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, to drag them around from place to place every few weeks is difficult. And so that's one of the reasons we're a tad more settled now. Although I am, I mean, I'm taking my 12 year old on a three and a half month eight country trip in, in, in February, March, and April into May. So we'll keep going, but <laughs> in sort of a smaller version. So yeah. you told us before we got on, can, um, can you tell our listeners, like how, you started in 2016 and how long it went and for, where have you been? Oh, where have I been? Well, uh, I 
I know you've been a lot. Well, no, I, I can, I can. Yeah. So in 2016, uh, the summer of 2016, I was still pitching the idea to universities. I'd been pitching since January. Um, and I'm not kidding when I say every weekend, every weekend I would go sometimes humiliate myself in front of some department head somewhere <laughs> and then go home. Um, but every now and then it worked. Uh, but starting in that summer, I started filming my early American videos. And uh, you can tell those videos because the wind sounds are loud and they're shaky. And I'm, I'm literally holding a GoPro backwards at myself with no stabilizer. It, it's very amateur, but that's, that's how it started. Um, and then at the end of that summer, we went to Japan. And from uh, the end of the summer of 2016, all the way up to uh, the about a third of the way through 2018, we were going overland from East Asia to the Atlantic coast of Europe. Hmm. Um, the only the only time we did not go overland is because of visa issues. We had to fly hmm. over Azerbaijan into Georgia, um, and then we did take a cargo ship from Georgia to Bulgaria. It was a three-day Black Sea sea trip. But besides that, it was all it was all overland. And yeah, so we did, uh, I don't know how many countries it was, 30 plus, um, mostly either walking or by bus, uh, taxi, Uber, just whatever. <laughs> Uber too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hey, hey, that's another thing that's changed. Travel has changed so much. Uh, but one of the big things is almost every country now has an Uber-like system. They Often it's another name, hmm. but you just download the app and even there's no language issue because you've you set on the app where you want to go and where you're standing and they just pick you up and it's all, there's no trading of cash, no bartering or any, or uh, bargaining or anything. Yeah. So I mean, you can go to a place like India and even travel between cities with their, they call it Ola there. They have Uber and stuff too. But anyway, it's, it, there are some things that are much easier, even as the state continues to make travel harder and harder. Um, so, so that was to 2018. And then in 2019, you said you were kind of intermittent, right? Right. We, we still did a lot of travel. And actually the whole, about three and a half months of the summer, we were nomadic again, just living out of, this sounds terrible. Like I make my family homeless, but <laughs> we were living out of the truck. We, we had, I bought a big three room tent Ooh. and I brought, I brought rugs and desks and lamps and fans. And uh, so that they didn't feel like I was just, I want them to be comfortable and I want these all to be good memories. And I want, I want to have a place that's still uh, workable when it comes to their school and things like that. Mm -hmm but I don't make the money to stay in hotels every night yeah. for three and a half months with four kids. Yeah. yeah I just don't. Uh, so we did it this way and we did travel through the South in the summer in a tent, which was hot and crazy. <laughs> we would go to bed at midnight because that's the only time when you weren't miserable, well, but, hot. um, but we did it and we, we were completely nomadic. I filmed tons of video for the American course that I was, uh, that I've just completed. It's, it went on sale for the first time a couple of weeks ago. And so, um, and I'm working on the second and third one right now. And so a lot of that material will go in there. 
So 2019, that was the most nomadic sec uh, part of 2019 was the summer. Completely, okay. utterly nomadic. Yeah. So a lot of your travels, you guys did stay intense then, like more camping style? <laughs> Sounds so terrible. It does. Yes. No, we when, think it's when so we were interesting. In, well, you know, uh, the, the financial reality is unless you're rich or you want to go buy an expensive RV or something, you got to do something like this. Yeah. And, and we happen to live in a country. Europe is another area where you can do this, where there are lots of free camping sites or low cost camping sites with facilities. Uh, and, and depending on where you are, it's by far the most beautiful and enjoyable, if you like the outdoors yeah. way of traveling anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have a truck, so that works. And, you know, uh, we punctuated it this last summer. We did do two weeks in Puerto Rico. I was doing, I was filming uh, some portions on um, the Spanish-American War and some other things while, while we were down there. But um, we stayed in a nice Airbnb. I tried to punctuate the, the, the camping with a, a few nights of, you know, luxury or something so they don't feel like it was miserable. But uh, yeah, I mean, we had fun. We had fun. My kids like camping and yeah, it was, it was a great summer. It was a great summer. That's yeah. right up our alley. Well, that, that's, I mean, that, that sounds like an amazing summer, yeah. especially for some, some kids. Yeah, it I was. Mean, yes. That's, uh, I mean, I mean that stuff they'll never forget. Mm -mm. I, I hope not. I don't think they will. And we, uh, the one thing is it's not like we were camping and then spending the day hiking or something. Mm -hmm. They would do stuff like that, but dad was visiting sites all the time. And this last summer was crazy because I was trying to film so much. I probably averaged three to four sites a day for three and a half months. Wow. Each one with a different video, a different mini lesson to film. And so uh, they would tell you that I was dragging them around to ruins, cemeteries, historical sites, museums, just history, history, history all the time. So it wasn't always fun. Yeah. But it was often fun. And, <laughs> and it was certainly educational. And when we travel together as a family, it's just great. It, ironically, it's when we get back home, it's when we get back to a settled situation, when people scatter, when all the distractions come in. And it's hard to get together as a family, especially as the kids get older. Uh, but yet when we're traveling, when it should be chaotic, we're always reading together and talking and having long discussions and it's great. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's, that's what you hope a, tr a trip like that or traveling does for your family. So, so while you're on the road like that, what does is, what is homeschooling look like for your, for your kids? Do you follow a certain method or is it, you, I'm assuming you incorporate your travels into their education? Definitely. Yeah, we definitely do. Um, so my wife and I have always, it's an uneven split. I, I'm always, I always take, uh, this is going to make it sound like I have like trouble kids, but <laughs> I always take the kid that might be struggling a bit or need a little extra attention mm -hmm. where, and she'll take the other three because I'm also working full time. Uh, and so there's that and that who that individual child is has changed over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, right now I'm working with my 12 year old. He's awesome, but he needs a little extra attention from dad. And so, uh, you know, uh, what we do is a little more ad hoc. It's not like we've been following one system. 
uh, the whole time. We like to mix and mingle. It's one of the benefits of homeschooling. Yep. Uh, you know your kids and you know their interests. And the more you can cater to them, I say the better. So that's what we do. Um, we usually have uh, some sort of set math curriculum. Mm -hmm. That's something that we don't cut corners with. <laughs> and so they, so they do that. And I'm not good at math. My wife is, but I'm not good at math. So I appreciate it. And, and any homeschooler knows that when it comes to curricula, there's so much, there's so, so much when it comes to math. Math is one of those topics where you got a lot of choices, particularly if it's eighth grade and below. You got a lot of choices, and a lot of things to choose from. Once you get into high school, it's a little different. But when it comes to the other topic, other subjects, like history, of course, I'm tuned into history. Uh, it's not so great, particularly when you get to the high school age. There's almost nothing. Um, so we just create, I've just created our own. If we're on a, if we go on a trip, I create a little something that's sort of like a journal. Think of it as a, a, a pack of guided notes that they have to fill out or, you know, and there'll be ma a map section and an essay section and other things, uh, ob observations that they'll be making throughout. Uh, they'll be tracing routes. Um, while we were in the States, we had them do all, every national park and state park, they would They'd have to get the badge and fill out the notebook. And, I mean, you just take advantage of wherever you are. You sort of have to just be adaptable. Um, we're heavy on writing and reading. Um, that, that's, that, those are sort of our strengths. So we, we play to that. Um, and so no matter where we are, you know, on Monday, the kids have an essay that they can turn in on Tuesday. By Wednesday, we've given it back with our notes and corrections and other things. And by Friday, the polished version is due. So no matter where we are in the world or what we're doing, that Monday through Friday cycle mm -hmm. persists. Yeah. And uh, we have them read aloud. That's, I know it seems a little old school maybe to some people, nope. but um, I love, <laughs> I, I, I'm a firm believer that, uh, and I use a little, I'll show you right here. I think I have it. Yeah. I bring this little pig timer. It's an egg timer. <laughs> but uh, I bring this and I turn it on 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, depending on the who it is, the student. And, you know, I have this sort of big library or if we're on the road, I have a little stack of books and they just pick something and have to read out loud to me for that period of time. And we, it introduces new vocab and my kids are pretty inquisitive, so we end up having discussions after. But that's another daily thing that you can do anywhere. Yeah. Uh, a lot of this, we try to be, at, we try to use as little screen uh, homeschooling as possible. And I know that that's, it's not always possible. And it, it can be very convenient on the road. But um, whenever possible, we try and not use the screen. It's one of the reasons that the courses that I just created, there's an entirely physical version of it, just in case a, a homeschool parent wants to get away from the screen, not mm -hmm. add more screen. So, now, I've taken all the all those videos that I've been filming. Yeah, I'm I'm converting them all to comic book strip, um, and they're actually really cool. Um, awesome. But the whole point is now, if you if you have if you use my course you can use it with all of its various elements fully, so, something you can hold in your hand, fully screenless if you want. 
at the same time, of course, all the videos are there and the text and the audio, the whole thing is an audio book, et cetera. Do you think that your homeschooling, it sounds like it probably hasn't even changed that much, even if you're at a home base now, right? As far as your routine and. Yeah, there are, let's see, what's changed that we're, now that we're here. I mean, they have a, a bigger library to choose from. Right. <laughs> I can uh, show you the. Oh, that's awesome. That's or like your show. Know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I had my brother-in-law come over and put in these shelves. Um, so here they have more to choose from that they can hold in their hands. But that's never an issue. No matter where you go, there's always bookstores preferably use bookstores and you, mm-hmm. it's always fun to let them go in and pick something. But uh, yeah, not much has changed except they have their desktops instead of a yeah. laptop or a tablet and, and you're not incorporating like travel assignments. Mm-hmm. Uh, my son's about to get that again when we leave, but yeah. <laughs> so what are some ways that you feel like you're, maybe you saw your kids grow with all this traveling and seeing these places and different cultures. Well, time will tell, uh, Mm -hmm. but it was gratifying to see them, first of all, mix and mingle with people from all over the place. Uh, We went to church every Sunday, wherever we were, whenever we could. Mm -hmm. So that alone meant that we were going to something local meeting locals and often it would result in a, a dinner invite or an activity between two of the kids. They, they made friends. They made, they learned to make friends quickly because of course kids want to make friends. Yeah. And uh, they're still in touch with a lot of these people. Uh, you know, one of the, the old canards of homeschooling is that they don't get socialization yeah. as opposed to the great socialization they get at a government school. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, um, uh, it was great to see them. I mean, they're comfortable with company of mm-hmm. all ages, of any any look. It, it doesn't matter. Um, and so that, that was gratifying. Um, and I think another thing is, and I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way, but when you travel, it's harder to uh, to see peoples and groups in super simplified ways uh the the complexity of human beings is is apparent you see people as as individuals they have faces and and whatnot so um when we when we come back to the states and it's super divided and people are throwing out like way oversimplified vitriol on all sides and uh, often it has to do with like foreign groups or this ethnicity or that ethnicity or whatever it might be uh it's harder to to be taken in by any of that stuff because you've seen that human nature is pretty consistent all over the world. First of all, you've seen that most people all over the world are good. Uh, That's one of the things that my kids independent of me have brought up again and again. Uh, They met good people all over the world. That's, that's awesome. But also they saw the dark side of humanity all over the world too. They understand that no one group has a monopoly on, the bad stuff. And that uh, sometimes uh, some of the rhetoric floating around America right now, what a, what a weird place America is right now, um, is that it would make you think that 
people in America are uniquely this or that, often a bad thing. And if you've, if you've traveled and truly traveled, you see, no, no, these, these are problems everywhere. America or Westerners or whatever are not uniquely anything. And often it's their rhetoric being used to supposedly remedy it. Uh, traveling can, I, I think, real traveling, spending real time in a different place, a completely different environment, or many of them, hopefully can insulate you, to, at least to a degree, to manipulation and being duped by oversimplifications. And w- when you read the news, or if, you, if you're the type of person that just peruses headlines, man, we live in a very manipulative time. We're just bombarded with oversimplification. And I hope that these experiences hammer home the complexity of, of things, of life, of people. Long-winded answer, but that, there you go. That was a great mm-hmm. answer. I actually was going to ask you, but you ended up saying it. We just recently interviewed a, a family, and the, the woman we interviewed, her name was Sarah, and she's uh, taking, her and her husband are taking their family down the Pan American Highway. Oh, wow. And they're, they, they're, in, they're in Central America. They're currently in, in uh, Mexico. And when we asked her, which we'll ask you eventually, what, what her piece of advice was for people, she said, I want everybody to know that, and, and I'm paraphrasing, that 99.9% of people in the world are good people. And that's what she wanted people to take from her travels. And it was really cool to hear you say the same thing for yeah. someone who's traveled probably more than anyone we're going to end up interviewing <laughs> that you have, the, you have the same outlook on the world, which is amazing. It's well, it's almost, un- it's almost, sorry, what are you saying? I said, it's refreshing to hear. Well, it's almost, I'm telling you, it's almost, uh, I mean, it's on, almost unavoidable. You're going to come to that conclusion. The more people you meet, because it, it is true. It, it's, it's reinforced again and again especially if you're if you're doing more than just being a tourist if you're actually meeting people Mm -hmm. um you can't help but come away with that when you've had when you've shared a meal with these with with people from this place and this place and this place and i mean you you just can't lump them together into a big faceless mask and 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 paint them with some characteristic It, it doesn't work anymore that being said they all have complexity too you don't want to patronize people either and so every society has its challenges. I'm, I'm not quite sure what I'm trying to, like the final point I'm trying to make here. It's just that I've noticed another tendency of people who, who consider themselves maybe internationally chic or something. They, they, they like to point out the flaws of their own society and almost glorify. It's like everyone else is to be celebrated, but I'm going to point out the flaws and show you how sophisticated I am. When the truth is... If you have your eyes wide open, I think you'll see the, those flaws are everywhere. Again, human nature is consistent. And that's uh, one of the great lessons you can learn. It, it really does uh, fortify you against being whipped around by every trend of the day, every flavor of the day. You will see intense racism in India and in China and everywhere you go. You'll see it in Africa. Um, and you'll come back to the States and you might be confused by everything that's thrown around here. Sometimes it, there's a dissonance. It doesn't seem to make sense, uh, some of the statements. Not to, say, not to say that there aren't problems in America too, in American society, of course there are. But some of the hyperbole is tempered, I mean, greatly tempered 
by these experiences. And uh, that's just one example. But all, all, all people are complex and most people, the vast majority are good. And that, if you've actually come to that realization, if that's real, then you will probably never find yourself at an ex, one of the extreme, you know, sitting at one, either end, extreme end of the political spectrum. It's just, you won't be comfortable. It won't match with your experiences. And that's that something that you can't learn unless you travel. That's not well, something you learn in the classroom or, you know. I think you can't. Discussion can go a long way. I'm not saying everyone has to be a seasoned traveler, but this is something that you'll quickly learn uh, if you were to go nomadic for a year or two. Yes, I mean, that, that's something you pick up. Um, you hear some of the stuff you, you hear when you get back will just come across as nonsense. And it'll baffle you that supposed experts are taking it seriously. Um, on the other hand, I think, uh, you know, don't, don't underestimate the power of, of good discussion. Uh, there are, there's some basic training, educational training that anybody can pick up, can go through that will to a large degree fortify them against this sort of manipulation that we're talking about. Um, and then the traveling will only reinforce it and, and flesh it out. But I don't think, I don't think you have to travel, but you have to have been equipped with the basic tools of learning. And I think uh, the, the education system such as it is in most places these days, not just in, in the United States, but in most places these days is woefully lacking in basic analytical training. I mean, it's, it's actually pretty terrible. Uh, the conclusions people come to based on the, 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 the terrible information that they have, information that they can see, they should be able to tell immediately through 10 different telltale signs. This is, this is questionable. It constantly astounds me. Again, that's one of the things I've tried to build into the course that I just created is, is historical literacy training. And not just historical, just literacy training. People have lost the ability, students have lost the ability to read, not just to read and understand those specific words, but to read between the lines and to make connections. And uh, whether you've traveled or not, that skill can, can protect you from being duped to a large degree, I think. Okay, so since this is a, a podcast on homeschooling and some, a lot of parenting, how, do you, how would you change that as a homeschooling parent? Make sure that doesn't happen. Well, like I said, we, we, uh, we're heavy on the reading and writing. And so uh, we have them read a wide variety of things. But in, in more importantly, we have them uh, write essays. And the reason they write essays is because in an essay, when you put things to words, you're forced to explain yourself. You're forced to defend your conclusions. And so we try and teach our kids what it means to make a systematic argument. If you're going to make an assertion, okay, now you've got to back it up and you've got to cite your sources and you've got to be able to demonstrate that these are good sources. It's not just that, oh, look, I have a fancy looking citation, but no, the citation actually leads to a source that you can demonstrate has veracity. Um, none of this is revelatory or, or you know, earth shakingly new. It's just missing. Trust me, I teach 
college freshmen all the time. And they come and they don't know how to write and they can barely stand a, a reading assignment that's more than five pages long. They don't have a clue about sourcing. Um, so one, one of the things I'm trying to do at a young age, you know, starting at age 11 or 12, they're learning about logical fallacies. They're learning about uh, how to systematically make an argument. They're citing properly. They're defending their assertions. That's great. And I, I think it's cultivated a bit of a healthy skepticism when it comes to information that they come across online, for example, mm -hmm. or in a political speech or whatever. There's always that healthy skepticism, or we might call it uh, vigilance. It's it's obviously, this is a, a long process, but come on, we educate our kids for, for years and years. I mean, back in the day, you were a child until puberty, and then you were an adult. Now we have this long, like 10-year teenage adolescence period. <laughs> we don't quite know what to do with these people. And so we educate them the entire time. And so they end up going through years and years and years of like, you know, seven, eight hours a day education, we may as well, I mean, this is one of the basic building blocks of education. This, this is where you learn how to learn. Uh, they used to have, I, mean, I don't, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the ancient concept of the trivium. I mean, they used to have, uh, before you'd learn anything else, you would learn grammar and you would learn logic and you would learn rhetoric. It's the classical education, right? That's right. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying go in on, on the whole thing, the quadrivium and all that, but the whole, the, the principle there, I think is very sound. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, we teach kids to be crusaders. We teach them to be activists and advocates before they know anything and before they can make an actual argument mm -hmm. that means anything. It's all emotion mm -hmm. and uh, emotion can be great. And, and being a crusader for a good cause can be great, but to take people who've never been trained in making an actual argument or in seeing through manipulative or propagandistic information and have them be activists and advocates or, or useful idiots. I mean, it's, it's, it's criminal almost. And so uh, if you're, if you're going to throw these teenagers into, you know, 10 years of education, give them the basic building blocks at least. So <laughs> it, it, it takes years to figure it out, but it's not hard. Between the ages of 12 and 15, you can become a master at it. Hmm. Really? Well, since you're talking about this, I've been wanting you to bring it up. Can you tell our listeners about your the courses you have created? Um, and I know that you have different membership options, but and kind of like what you offer within your sure. program. Um, okay, so the plan is to create 16 core courses. So these think of these as big survey courses. Um, they're sets of four and each set of four covers a major area that we think would be useful and often translates to college credit. So right now we're doing the American courses. So there's going to be four American history courses. We've just released course one, which is called to begin the world over again. It goes from pre-Columbian times to about 1790 when the constitution was ratified. And so the uh, United States of America, as we know it, has been created. That's where it ends. Um, there will be three more. They're each about 50 sessions. It comes out to 30 plus hours of audio, about 400 pages of text. But 
in all the text, the text is broken up by the on-location mini lectures filmed all over America and the world. So hopefully it's more engaging than, than your typical textbook or something. Mm -hmm. um, but there will be three more and that will cover the entire, uh, an entire American history survey. Um, and so were you to take these, you would be more than prepared to ace the, the CLEP, for example, which 99% of colleges and universities accept for credit. Um, and we're gonna do the same thing for Western Civ. Um, we're gonna do the same, I've already written the first one, we're just preparing it. We're gonna do the same thing for Asian history. Uh, a lot of my YouTube subscribers are from Asia and that is my specialty. So even though it might be less translatable into like a CLEP test or something, Asia's half the world and it's awesome. And I'm gonna make those courses. Um, and then there's uh, world history, which also there's CLEP for world, there's CLEP for Western Civ and there's CLEP for US. So those all have uh, practical applicability to a homeschooler, but then also they can be taken by an adult learner because you've got, not only do you have the text broken up by the videos, but then there's the fully audio version of the course, which you also get just in case you wanna to listen to it while you're jogging along, you're just interested in history you're less of a traditional student. Um, and then there's also the fully physical version. If you don't wanna take it via screen, you can read the text broken up by comic strip with the links to the videos if you do wanna watch those. Um, so yeah, and then, and then along the way, we'll put out some smaller, more specialty courses, like a you know, World War I course, a Mongols course, a Civil War course, uh, just in case you have more of a specific interest. But we hope that, you know, uh, a, homeschooler, a homeschooler has interest in history or a homeschooler who doesn't want to take, wants to test out of a college class will find our courses super useful. But maybe even more importantly, by the time they're done, they'll be a much better writer and reader. They'll be a much better, uh, I guess, digester of information. Mm -hmm. That's great because we actually just did a episode <laughs> with a woman who wrote a book called Homeschooling for College Credit. And it's all about the way how we can, you know, as homeschoolers can, you know, test out a lot of this stuff and, and almost get through school debt free. So it's a, that is great. You can, you can yes. do that. So yeah. When it comes to undergrad stuff, you can do that. It's at least your generals. Right. Absolutely. You can do that. Yeah. My kids are on track to, uh, to finish high school a year or two early. And um, that's the plan. They're going to take my courses, test out of all their history. In the meantime, prepare for other CLEPs and take some community college courses for pennies on the dollar compared to what they take. So that when they go to college with their friends of the same age, they're just doing majors courses. Yep. So that's the plan. That's exactly what you said. Yeah. This, this is great. Perfect. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so your class is an awesome, engaging class that's going to help them test out of that. <laughs> I, I hope so. And I hope they'll find that it's useful beyond just the history. Mm -hmm. Although the history is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we enjoyed watching your YouTube videos. They are, I mean, that is, you're right. A lot of times it can be very, like, I love history. But a lot of times, a lot of many books can be pretty dry. Mm, oh, right now. Yeah, watching your videos, <laughs> it's so cool. Mike, when, when she Thank showed you. me your videos, I was like, now this is what I'm talking about. Somebody who is actually there showing you what they're talking about. And you can you can visualize it. 
right. You know, as you're, as you're learning. And that's what, especially as a kid, not even as an adult, but as a kid, it, that would help greatly. Yeah. I mean, every, when it comes to history, a lot of students think of it as a dead subject. Mm-hmm. It's almost like either they think of it as dates and places, or they think of it as since it happened in the past and it's dead. I mean, it has, they're memorizing stories or something like they don't see the applicability to themselves and it see, and it doesn't seem alive, but the places are all there almost all the time. The place still exists. So if you can at least bring the setting alive, you've got a chance to bring the topic alive. And maybe, maybe you can agree having seen a couple of the videos, if you've watched a video and sort of engaged with that topic in that place, maybe you're more likely to read a few paragraphs of text after the video on that topic. I'm not asking you to read a whole book after the video, just a few paragraphs before the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the, that's the idea. I mean, this is the YouTube generation. They have a hard time, generally speaking, uh, they have a hard time uh, engaging for more than a few minutes at a time on one thing, uh, which is something that ideally uh, in a homeschool education, you'd break that. You'd, you'd teach them to concentrate on something for an hour before they have to break away and do something else. But the course was created with that in mind. The fact that after a few minutes, you're likely to start losing people. So you need to switch it up. And uh, we'll, we'll be adding more and more. Right now, the, the, the goal right now is to have one on-location something. Uh, whether it's a full-blown mini lecture, which tend to be between seven and 15 minutes, or a short mini lesson, which tend to be between two and five minutes, um, whether it's that or something else in every session. But we're going to be adding more and more to these sessions. So eventually there'll be two, three, four, five on-location something for every session. So it'll be quite broken up. That's awesome. Yeah. That, that is. And I have to assume you're living out your history dream when you first started going to school. Like this, <laughs> you, this couldn't be any better for you, right? I mean, yes, that is true. Uh, I remember asking my, uh, my PhD advisor, I was telling him, uh, the truth is I would love to get a PhD in just general world history. Is that possible? And he said, no, no, no one. That's not respectable. He said, if you want to get hired, you got to be a specialist in something. And that is so true. Uh, our, our professors these days, history professors, almost all of them are trained as specialists. They're not trained to teach a big survey course and make connections and broad history. All that they sort of learn on their own. Like, seriously, they're going to walk into that first, trust me, I've done this. They're going to walk into that first big history class that they have to teach. And they're super experts on some little thing, like world experts on that thing but they've never taught nor become experts on, you know, American history or, or, or Asian history or something. Their whole class they put together on their own, learning on their own, and they've never been taught how to do that. It, it's in a way, they're not trained at all to be anything but repeaters. And so the fact that I've been able to do what I've always wanted, and that is be a generalist, uh, be the broad historian who is able to make connections across large swaths of time and space. That's what I wanted to do. And so maybe subconsciously I was breaking out of my training this entire time. And now I'm finally doing what I, what I wanted to do originally. And of course I'm not doing it like in a, 
at an institution necessarily. I've sort of had to do it on my own. I, and I'd be lying too if I didn't say that the homeschooling element wasn't a major component. Yeah. Uh, the prospect of being able to travel consistently with the kids, incorporate that into their education. I mean, that's, that's been a major propeller of all of this. And they're seeing that you're creating your own dream. I mean, that's, that's going to be a huge lesson for your kids in itself. Like you didn't stop and yeah, I, that you saw you're making it happen. You want to see your kids become entrepreneurial and, and uh, creative and, and, and but there's an element of uh, uncertainty to it. I mean, any entrepreneur knows this. Uh, when you embark upon a new project, something untested, something risky, I mean, it's risky. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's awesome. Uh, my kids are, again, we cater everything. We cater much of their education to their interests. So my kids are very, all of them are interested in probably there's some influence going on here, but they're interested in, in vlogging and video editing and film production. And one of my sons is very, very good at animation. And so we do a lot of, we, we cater a lot of, of their curriculum to that, to those interests. Um, but they also now have dreams of, they have their own dreams and their dreams do not align with your typical safe tenure track type dreams. They're not that. So, so there's always the element as a parent, you know, wait, you, so you don't want to be a, you don't want to be a doctor. You don't want to. Okay. All right. You don't want to be a professor even. Nope. They want to create their own thing and do their own thing. And that's sort of what they're doing. And how can I blame them? It's what I'm doing. Hopefully that's a good thing. Again, time will tell. Yeah, <laughs> they're all so. still kids, so that's right. <laughs> this is a lifetime study here that we're that we're doing. <laughs> I think that we all feel like that. Oh, yeah, we'll all see how they turn out on the other side. <laughs> that's right. We will hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> that's all you can do. But the the signs are good, though, right? Yeah. The, so far, things look good, but we'll that's see. Good. So we, I like to ask all of our traveling families that we speak with this question. We've traveled some nowhere near, you know, what you do, but we know that things don't always go as planned. So I have to imagine you could give us like two to three great stories or scenarios um, where some ridiculous thing has happened to you and your family traveling that we all find hilarious, but it probably wasn't at the time, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah. I mean, man, if you're going to, if you're going to travel, I mean, travel is almost synonymous with uh, unpredictability. If you're not, if you're not all, you know, just expecting to have to adapt to unforeseen circumstances, it's going to be a a frustrating and stressful trip, probably, Uh, especially if it's long-term traveling. I mean, it's just part of it. You have to expect it. You have to adapt. Uh, We've definitely had We've had our problems with police. We've had our problems with visas. We've had our problems at border crossings, uh, accommodations. I mean, my kids could tell you stories about the bug house in South India or bed bugs in Cambodia or, uh, you know, troubles with pirates in on the Black Sea. Uh, in Tibet, the just suffocating, and East Turkestan, the suffocating uh, political propaganda and military presence and police presence and uh, just all sorts of things. Uh, we've had a couple of car crashes and one in Denmark and one in Bulgaria. Uh, I mean, stuff just happens. Canceled flights. 
uh, visa, uh, passport problems, connectivity problems, food problems. Uh, my son broke his arm in Hungary. My wife broke her foot in Thailand. Uh, you just have to be adaptable. And, 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 you know, like you said, later you look back and you actually do smile about it. And hopefully you learn something too. At the time, it seems like a really big deal. But um, if you're sort of expecting it, um, you know, it's just part of the experience. You never, you never planned for the Hungarian health system to be part of your experience. But you got a front row seat to a very different looking uh, health system. And now you've, you've, you've got that in your uh, sort of uh, in your knowledge base. It's there now. Sure. So, appreciate anyway. you'll appreciate things more. I bet. Right. Right. I mean, I, I will, I will, we got stuck once. I hate to say Chinese border because I consider East Turkestan an occupied country. I mean, it totally is for anyone who will look at it, the history, honestly. But um, we got stuck in a Chinese colony, basically, right on the Chinese border with East Tur between East Turkestan, which is controlled by China, and on all the maps, it's China, and Kyrgyzstan. And the border had closed due to a national holiday for, I think, hardly anyone crosses there. And uh, they could never tell us when the soldiers were coming back. So we were just stuck in this nothing Chinatown for days and days. And they had a, at one point they had a military parade and they moved us because we were filming the parade from our hotel room. They moved us to, this is like a horror movie hotel, by the way. My kids still refer to it as a, as a horror movie hotel. We watched the, the visit while we were there. And so the whole thing's associated with horror, but um, they moved us to the other side. So we couldn't see and, and record there. It, it was just, it was uncomfortable and a little suffocating. We knew we were being watched the whole time. We got escorted to the border. There was a, a Uyghur driver with us. And the Uyghurs, for anyone who doesn't know, are, are being severely repressed in, in, in whole concentration camps in, in East Turkestan for them. Our driver was Uyghur, but he couldn't drive us to the border by himself because the Chinese were afraid he would hop over. So a Chinese soldier with a gun just sat in there and, and drove with us so he couldn't leave with us and then they just dropped us off and we're looking out into the landscape into Kyrgyzstan and there's a river and there's mountains as far as we can see and a road and that's it it just seems to be going off into the wilderness and we've got all our bags and everything and they say goodbye and they drive away so there's this barbed wire fence and then nothing in front of us and we just walked for miles <laughs> in the wilderness of Kyrgyzstan like did your uber app work there that 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 was one of the places where no not at all. Of course. <laughs> we finally got to a border post manned by all these Russian mercenaries. And they were, they were looking at us as we're approaching these kids. And, you know, my, my daughter has a teddy bear. <laughs> we're just walking. They just couldn't. But what is happening? First of all, we see people once a month. And it's like some single guy from Norway or something. Anyway, it all, it all worked out. But you have moments like that especially if you're, you're determined to go like overland or something like that. You're not going to take the easiest, most convenient A to B method, but everything, everything worked out. Um, we've never, we've been lucky. I think a lot of people who are scared to travel will be pleasantly surprised by what they can do. And like I said, the, the big roadblock to travel these days is, is the state. It's, 
the state makes it very difficult at times to, to cross borders or to be present. There's so many forms and, and, and permissions and you're far more likely to run into to problems in some, in some of these places with the, like the, the local police who are often corrupt than with the locals. Almost universally, everywhere we've been, the locals are awesome. They're hospitable, they're kind. It's agents of the state that tend to be the ones, the, the, the troublemakers, not to mention the ones who raise the prices for everything. That's, <laughs> that's another discussion. Travel would be so much cheaper without all the state's taxes on travelers. But, and it doesn't help that, that visas are part of a, this is a different discussion, but visas are part of a sort of a tit for tat uh, uh, scenario, uh, competitions and, and you know, revenge situations between this government and that government. When, when government A has done something that government B doesn't like, they'll punish government A by making visas more expensive or denying travel or whatever, even though the people using those visas are never involved in their squabble. Right. And the people that are involved in their squabble are diplomats who get diplomatic passports anyway, and they don't have to worry about it. So uh, <laughs> regular travelers are always bearing the brunt of, of the squabbles of these political elites, but that's just a reality in our highly statist world. But that's, a, that's, that's also a valuable lesson. It is. So. All right. So as we begin to wrap up, we have a couple questions left. And uh, the first one is, which, what's, the, what's your favorite history book that a non-academic could read and digest and really enjoy? Got a couple. Okay. Uh, one is uh, a book called The Great Game by Peter Hopkirk, The Great Game where he talks about uh, what Kipling called the great game between Britain and the British empire and the Russian empire in the 19th century. And it's, it reads like a novel and it takes place over about a century and it's just awesome. It's one of the books that solidified history for me as an interest. Uh, and then another book that I think is very uh, approachable a great survey of the last 80 years, at least, is uh, Paul Johnson's Modern Times, which is a world history of the 20th century. Uh, you can ignore the last from the 80s on, but everything before the 80s is really well done and very accessible. And again, it reads, he's such a good writer. He's captivating. It's not dry. Mm -hmm. Like you said, the, the curse of history is that so many people producing history books are academics, which would be great, except they've never been taught how to write in a captivating way. Mm -hmm. History is shoved into the social sciences these days instead of the humanities, where I think it probably belongs. In the humanities, you learn to communicate. You learn to tell stories. And these are stories. Uh, you can still be rigorous and, and, and defend all your assertions and things and tell a story. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're delivering history and you're not telling a story, it's just dry no one will read it except for half a dozen of your colleagues what's the point of that yeah we try to focus on living books for our history for our geography all that and it works right i fell in love with history and geography because of living books when we started homeschooling because i was cool. one of those that was like no i can't it's just too boring but you're right true. it makes it a world of a difference it does but it's more like you're telling a story Right. And so a good historian will know how to toe the line between or not toe the line, how to walk the line between 
rigorous scholarship because you still want that rigorous scholarship, but also effective communication. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of great scholars who are good at the scholarship part and they're terrible at the communication part. And there are a lot of popular historians who are great at the communication part, but terrible at the, at the scholarship part. So mm-hmm. when you find those, those, those rare few who can do both, you, you buy all their books. And they, <laughs> <laughs> so. All right. So we, this is one of the final questions we have for you. We know you're a busy man, but uh, it's a version that we give to all of our guests. If you were, if you, if you knew you were going to lose your ability to communicate tomorrow, what is one last piece of advice you'd like to give the world? And that could be just your outlook on life. That's a very, very difficult question. It is. Um, <laughs> don't forget to feed the cats. To my family. <laughs> they always do. I'm the only one that does it. I mean, the cats would die. Uh, I like that. I like that one answer you got. 99.9% of people are good. That's so, that's so wise. <laughs> um, you know what? I might have to get back to you on that one. That's okay. Yeah. I, I don't have much wisdom. That's well, feeding the, the cats that's the and problem. then just saying the other one was good, that will work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's so much I want to say. So, yeah. It's hard. It's hard to make one thing. I know. What would you guys say? <laughs> oh, gosh. oh, you can't do that. <laughs> See? This is, we're interviewing you. <laughs> okay no that's fair that's fair. no honestly for me it would be um just to, you know remember the importance the importance of your family because in the end that's really all that matters so true yeah. yeah and that's why i love your story because you've based your entire um career and your life around something that you love but also you've involved your your entire family in it which is a beautiful thing to us mm-hmm. i love it I'd piggyback off that then. I'm going to piggyback off your, okay. your comment. Yeah, it's it struck me more recently than ever uh, uh, how a lot of the things that we do, even the things we're passionate about, the older I get, the more I realize that it's not something I'm going to care about later, uh, you know, when I'm dying and surrounded by friends or whatever. And it's, it's what I care about the most is uh, the lessons that I leave with the kids they're the, they're the legacy. And so um, what a waste if I've created the the greatest courses ever, but I never passed on the best lessons to my own children. Uh, So yeah, I, I, I second what you say. (laughs) No, that was, that was great. That is great. I love that legacy. Your kids are a legacy and that's, we feel the same way. So to wrap it up, where can our listeners find you and your courses? Um, easiest way to access the courses and just everything that we have recently uh, made available is nomadicprofessor.com. So www.nomadicprofessor.com. Uh, you could go on YouTube, just type in nomadic professor. I should come up first. Um, yeah. So we have, you can buy, if you're interested, you can buy courses completely, just a one-time purchase. Uh, or you can subscribe to all course content. We're, we're dripping out course content. Every four weeks, we have a new unit of five sessions in one of the courses that comes out. So you could subscribe to that and you just always have new stuff. Um, and then we also have a, a, like a membership group called Nomad Nation, where we do webinars, uh, lectures, a Q&A that we check every day that you could you know, ask any question at any time. And, and within 24 hours, I'll answer it. 
to the best of my ability. I'll send you postcards from my travels um, <laughs> regularly um, and other things. We, we publish like a newsletter that's like a magazine for those guys. So a lot of different options, but hopefully uh, we're presenting history in a, the way we always put it is we wanted to marry uh, the rigor of a college classroom with the scaffolding of a high school classroom. So hopefully you find the subject matter rigorous, but also very accessible because of all the scaffolding. Uh, I've teamed up with a high school teacher and together we've, this is a, a joint creation. So we've got the nomadic professor stuff for the college audience, but it's been made accessible to high school aged homeschool kids. That's awesome. Great. Well, we want to say thank you for your time. We really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for the invite. And we'll, yes. uh, we're going to keep watching your, your uh, content because it, it is awesome. So yes. we're going to put all your links in the show notes. And thanks again. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. All right. We'll see you. First, we want to thank William for joining us for this conversation. He has such a fascinating story. And I think we can all agree that the educational system needs more open-minded individuals like this. His courses are amazing. So please check him out in the links in the show notes. Thanks to all of you for meeting us around the fire for another amazing discussion. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at thehomeschoolprojectpodcast.com. And as always, let's light a fire they can't put out.